Thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, we're here to discuss AI and machine learning in healthcare together with Hub Security's very own VP of Solutions Engineering, Noam Dror, um, alongside a number of computing and security experts and healthcare, um, including Angela Azabachi, Nitin Dahavate, James Conyer, Sezai Taskin, and Jochen Kuhn. Thank you guys so much for joining us and for being here today. We'll start our webinar with a brief introduction from Noam Dror on the security challenges faced by healthcare organizations when it comes to AI and machine learning. And then our panelists will each get the chance to briefly introduce themselves. After we'll get into a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to encryption security, uh, healthcare uh, and data privacy, including its ongoing threats and solutions. As usual, we'll leave about 30 minutes at the end of our discussion for a short Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout, feel free to drop them in the Q&A section below. And if you can't find it, you can also drop them in the chat. That's fine too. Uh, we will get to them later on. Now we have an impressive lineup of panelists tonight and I'm excited to have them each introduce themselves to you. But first we'll begin with a few words from Noam before we hand off the mic for introductions. Uh, welcome Noam, we're happy to have you here with us. Perfect, thank you, Sterney. Uh, so hello everyone, my name is uh, Noam Dror. I'm the uh, VP of Solution Engineering here at Hub Security. I've been in the uh, security, cybersecurity space for many, many years working with enterprise customers. Many of them are in the healthcare space. So I've seen some of the challenges and uh, solutions in that space. Today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, AI in healthcare and really the goal of AI uh, in healthcare is to advance uh, the healthcare in general. It can start with some preventative uh, measures, uh, going all the way to complex operations and uh, genome interpretations and, and things like that. Now, in order to make AI work well, we need big data and a lot of it, a lot of big data. Uh, so to make it accurate, we need that big data that has some concerns. A lot of those concerns are privacy. A lot of those concerns are usability, the ecosystem, the standards. So I'm sure we'll discuss a lot of those uh, topics on uh, today's session. And I'm uh, looking uh, forward for this lively debate. Great. Thank you so much, Noam. Um, uh, we're really glad that you can be here with us today. And uh, we're glad to have you back, uh, back on another one of our, um, of our events. Now, um, I'd like to take a few minutes to do a quick introduction round. So starting maybe with Angela, would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself and your field of expertise? Where are you coming from and what perspective will you bring? Absolutely. Thank you, Sterney and Noam. Um, Good day, everyone. My name is Angela Zabajic, and I'm joining from the Boston area today. So it's frosty and cool here, below 32 Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. So I'm jealous of all of you joining from warmer areas. Um, thank you to Hub Security for this opportunity to participate in this exciting panel of experts. A couple of words about me. Well, I consider myself a corporate entrepreneur and a product innovation aficionado, really. I've been in medical imaging industry for 18 plus years now, scaling products and developing new markets domestically and internationally with startups, small and medium-sized companies, as well as some of the large corporations. And then the favorite part of mine for the past seven years or so, I've been working in the growing and exciting field of AI and deep learning. So I love the uh, comment that No mentioned about the uh, big data. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, 
I'm currently director of product for AI solutions with ICAD. So my team focuses on designing and bringing AI products to market. ICAD is a breast cancer early detection and early risk prediction innovator and a market leader. And in the last couple of years, we have successfully introduced the AI concurrent reader solutions that help radiologists with finding more cancer essentially. And uh, so for all of you who doubt if AI sells, it does. We have over 700 paying customers. <laughs> and so when it does, uh, when it comes to doing the right thing, AI is um, certainly has a place in AI in helping in, uh, in healthcare. So I'm very proud of, my, of the work that my team does, creating personalized risk-based approach to breast screening and uh, women's imaging and uh, <clears throat> our newest products for profound AI detection and risk for those of you who are interested have been lately making national news. Um, so if you're in the field of, you know, this is really kind of CrossFit between Femtech and uh, AI, please feel free uh, to check it out. And I look forward to sharing my experience and enthusiasm with everybody on this panel. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Angela. And uh, introduce me to a new, uh, a new market, it's Femtech. You never heard of this before, I love it. Um, next, we'll go over to Nitin. Uh, thanks, Johnny. So uh, good day, everyone. My name is Nitin Dauti. Uh, I head data privacy for Novartis uh, in India, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan African countries. So essentially, I'm the data privacy officers for around 45 odd countries across the globe. Uh, I have joined in from India today, uh, where we are actually celebrating Diwali, which is the festival of lights. So if you hear some crackers in the background, do forgive me for that. There's a lot of noise in the background, potentially. Uh, but what I would like to bring to the table today is perspectives from the data privacy side. Uh, so yes, we we have seen AI being used a lot in AI, I mean in healthcare uh, over the last few years. Uh, what interplay does this have with with data privacy to a certain extent? Security is what I would like to bring to the table today. Thank you. Great, thank you, Nitin. Um, next, Sazai uh, Kaskin wanted to give us an introduction. Good evening, everybody. Um, do you hear me? Um, I'm Dalian from Basel and joining um, as uh, Senior Vice President um, for Okin. Um, I'm responsible for, responsible for strategic business development. Now, I, I joined recently the company who, is, uh, who has done a lot of great work on AI. Um, I was before that for uh, 20 years with pharmaceuticals companies and uh, we work very closely with, with, um, with pharmaceutical companies um, um, at Okin. So I'm bringing in, I'm bringing in the, the customer view to, to, to the company and uh, hopefully here as well, looking at from a customer perspective, patient data, very sensitive, obviously, um, and we have uh, used different models to secure that, to secure the, uh, the privacy of, of this data. And um, now, um, now um, also bringing in some of the work that we have done at Okin and, and we're still currently doing, for example, working with 10 big pharma companies uh, where they are shared their data with us, and then we're securing we're securing their data so um, that they trust us that and want to work with us. Looking forward to the discussion. Great, thank you, Suzai. Um, next, I'd like to introduce uh, Dean Conyers, uh, CEO of Analytic. Hi, thank you, um, thank you, Hub Security, and everybody for allowing me to participate in this this exciting event here. Um, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm joining from Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, unlike Anjali, it is actually warm here, so uh, I am enjoying that. Uh, I'm, I'm a technical person by default, I've, uh, but when you spent 25 years in healthcare like I have, you become clinical, um, spending a lot of time traveling the world, installing critical care systems. 
Um, I've devoted pretty much my entire career to attacking head first the difficult challenges that face in healthcare. And I'm hoping today to bring to the panel and the discussion here exactly about uh, attacking the real challenges that are facing the big data, the research, the, the consumer, and really focusing it on the continuum of care of a patient and looking at it from that perspective. I've had the privilege over 25 years to work in radiology, cardiology, advanced visualization, pathology, work with EMRs, dictation systems, across all 45 specialties in the health system. Um, when looking at it from that entire enterprise view, it makes me very excited to see what AI and ML can actually do in the healthcare sector, giving it the right chance to grow, excel, and proliferate throughout the, the entire industry. It will bring value, it's a matter of all of us coming together to figure out what is the best way to have that assimilation and adoption into the enterprise health system, rather than looking at it from very specific use cases. So I appreciate everybody um, joining and listening, and I'm very passionate about increasing clinical workflows and the outcomes associated with them. Thank Great, thank you, James. And we're happy that you could be here with us today. Um, last but not least, we have Jochen, CEO of Prevent. Jochen, take away. Hey, yeah, my name is Jochen Kuma. I'm the CEO and founder of Prevent. And um, Prevent is a, is a very much clinically focused company uh, trying to address the need for newborn eyes to be screened. And like everybody, I have spent uh, a good couple of decades, possibly more, building solutions across the board, Stanford, Roche. Um, and um, like many others have said, I, I, I'm actually very happy to have made the same pivot to go from being a technical, technically focused person on to being more patient, clinically focused, really trying to deliver something to people that um, uh, makes their lives better. And so I actually am going to argue today that AI is a wonderful tool to sort of improve healthcare, make it available where it's not available and um, make it more reliable. And, uh, you know, uh, not to say that it's a, it's a dream come true. Like, like everybody else here, I've learned that um, privacy, data security, and actual quality of the execution is key to, to succeeding. And so my personal philosophy and the company's philosophy is to do that. And uh, very motivated to bring this out into the world, help the doctors, help the patients, and make it seamless. And, you know, the patient should never really know that they're dealing with AI. Anyway, never mind. I'm being very argumentative, but I am very grateful to be here and I love the company and um, have met some of you previously. Great. Thank you so much, Jochen. Um, so because we have such a, a large audience today, we have people joining who um, might be really new to some of these topics and people who might be professionals within the field. So we decided that we would break up our topics into three categories today, starting with number one, an introduction to healthcare um, technology, including AI, ML, and um, moving into some of the challenges and threats uh, that are faced within the markets and uh, some of the solutions and approaches um, as topic number three um, on how some of uh, the organizations that you guys are a part of or working with um, are working to uh, deal with the challenges. Um, so starting off um, with our first topic, um, starting off more, more high-leveled, uh, we're going to get a bit more detailed and technical. Um, I wanted to get James 
uh, on our first question, which is what are some of the technologies that we're seeing emerging right now within healthcare, specifically around the use of AI and machine learning? Yes, thank you. Uh, love to take that question. Uh, <clears throat> some of the emerging technologies that I believe that we're starting to see are technologies that are taking AI and ML and focusing those technologies, not just on detection and triage or what we could call the, the sexy and the non-sexy side of, of AI, but really looking at that entire continuum of care of a patient. You've got companies out there like Path AI and others that are really focusing on the entire aspect of what it means to deliver. So when we start looking at the AI aspect of what's coming down the pipe and where AI is evolving inside of the industry, what we're starting to see, and at least from my perspective and, and what I'm seeing, is that we're moving further or earlier on in the clinical workflow to try to address the problem sooner. So that as we start to address the problem sooner, as we start to affect the clinician's ability to provide patient care at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's the clinicians that actually provide the patient care, right? It's not the AI algorithm, and it's, it's not you or I, but the clinician. So when we start seeing this kind of convergence away from making the people feel or the industry feel that AI is taking over things, we're really making it feel like AI now is starting to enable the success of these healthcare systems. And not just from a clinician standpoint, what I think the biggest advantage that we're seeing from the AI ML world and the emergence of technology is really around security it is around data exchange. It is around the encryption, the antivirus, uh, dealing with how we actually can proliferate that data across and extend it throughout, not just the provider market, but the patient and the payer market at the same time. So what we also are starting to see is accessibility, the emergence of accessibility of AI. We're starting to see a lot more different approaches to how we actually commercialize and take AI to market and building an infrastructure that isn't just built off of a cloud, but also accommodates areas where we have GDPR issues or province-based data exchange issues that we can actually deploy, not just a cloud-based AI solution, but we're seeing that we are moving back to on-prem or hybrid-based solutions so that we can facilitate the exchange of that data. Um, <clears throat> the last thing that I'll say on what we are seeing from emerging is technologies and solutions out there that are being driven by AI and various different uh, machine learning techniques. When we first started looking at AI, we could all probably point two fingers, right? One to computer vision and one to natural language processing. But what we're starting to see now is much more different types of methodologies and techniques being used. So we're not just using one specific AI or methodology to address the problem. We're starting to combine AI. Um, from transfer learning, we'll talk about federated learning, federated data learning, uh, various different techniques to actually come together to solve the problem. What we're seeing is one AI methodology and technique doesn't solve the problem. We have to branch further out in the AI world. And Jochen, maybe you can tell us what is the potential here? What can we do with um, AI ML? And should we use it to replace or disrupt the current systems and frameworks that we use? Oh, um, uh, well, I get, I, I, I think James's comments are very to the point. I think the potential is very large. I am reluctant to say that we should, um, I'm not sure we're ready to revolutionize healthcare um, in part because there are regulatory and safety and privacy concerns that we haven't really solved yet. However, I think we have the opportunity to um, do some 
seemingly basic things like making sure that um, you know um, even simple things as vision processing in healthcare is, is more reliable. So human beings are, get tired. Um, the error rates in radiology can be quite high depending on, on circumstances. Um, in, our person, in, our, in, in our world of newborn eye screening, we, for instance, find that we are layering now different AI solutions, one on top of the other. So for instance, we are finding um, Im images that show concern about the baby. And we are then able to trigger whole genome sequencing and in, in newborn eye disease, you're dealing with a complex situation, 300 genes, thousands of mutations, some of them known, some of them new. Um, and the motivation, of course, is that these inherited retina diseases are very severe, lead to blindness. And so the AI can find the patients, help us um, interpret the genome information, and then provide a genetic counselor with the information they need to communicate to the parents. And in the process, we've also had to learn that um, the, <laughs> the AI, AI can be a decision assistant or a decision-making tool. So when do you pass a patient on? How do you pass it on? Um, and, and, and so I, I think the, the workflow idea is very, very much um, upfront in my mind. Making AI something that changes the way patients are handled in, in the hospital and um, information is transferred. Um, and I, I, think, I think we are some years away, but hopefully not too far away from a situation where you can get a pretty good AI evaluation um, on, on a medical or health question you have and then follow up on that. But uh, I'm concerned about regulatory, um, you know, totally justified regulatory um, issues that need to be addressed here. Definitely. And I think those setbacks are something that we're going to touch on today, um, hopefully in our discussion. Um, James, I wanted to get, um, to get back to you. Healthcare at its core is all about patient care and patient outcomes. Um, when looking at a patient's journey, how can AI machine learning, where and how can it have the most impact? Uh, yes, thanks. And I, I, I agree when, we, when uh, we were just talking about the clinical workflows, right? To, in my opinion, the answer is always in the clinical workflow. Uh, we should be able to derive what we need to from that. Um, very good question. So it, it is about patient care. And I alluded to it a little bit previously that in order to provide patient care, we have to enable the clinicians. Um, and how do we actually enable the clinicians? There's infrastructure, there's AI, there's critical care applications. There's, there's a number of things that happen inside of the health system. And when we look at it, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, uh, if we take a step back and we look at healthcare, healthcare is a conglomerate in this massive autonomous system built off of thousands of point solutions, solutions that were designed to do one specific thing. And uh, back in the early 2000s, what was the hype around digital radiology when it was coming out? It was about breaking down silos, right? And starting to bring the collaboration of information together. And then we heard enterprise imaging. So AI in and of itself shouldn't just be focused around the detection and triage, but it should also be focused around clinical operations, integrations, accessibility. It needs to be focused on the clinician's quality of life um, in their delivery of that high quality continuum of care service. Because when we look at a patient, it's not just the 15 minutes, for example, in radiology, 
uh, or, or whatever time it may be, depending on the complexity of the study, that that is not the entire continuum of care. There's 75% that happens before it ever hits a radiologist work list, as an example. So how do we improve that first 75%? How do we look at the continuum of care for a patient, not from a specific uh, injection point in the clinical workflow or from the bottom up, but look at it from the top down? And then we can actually see the complexity that exists with inside these healthcare environments. And a lot of times uh, we can argue whether or not it's duct tape and band-aids that are holding things together for the integration side of it. But when we do that, we can see there's various clinical specialties that are involved. Um, I have admissions when I first get to the hospital. Almost every single time you go to a, a hospital, there's a lab done. So it's not just about diagnostic imaging. There's laboratory done. How do I get that information safely from one place to another? So the delivery of it, the accessibility, the exchange of that data, that's what's going to drive diagnosis. That's what drives treatment planning. That's what's going to drive a post-acute care, um, just to name a few of those. So when we look at uh, clinical and operational use cases of AI and ML in, in healthcare, they need to come together to work to achieve a greater outcome, as well as protection against future threats. AI, it, again, is not just about detection and triage. It's also about securing the data, accessibility and exchange, right? So we also have to look at those future threats that existed at the proliferation of, uh, or, or the introduction of AI back in 2003, 2000, or I'm sorry, 2013, 2014, that was at the peak of ransomwares that we were dealing with. And so when you, you have 50 AI companies saying all of our stuff is in the cloud, well, I don't want to leave my secure network and now be in the cloud. So how do we use AI to facilitate that? And it's going to be bringing these various things together, um, different AI techniques to address it. Thank you, James. Uh, and Yoken, once back, one more time, back to you. And besides the legal and technical setbacks that we've already discussed, uh, what do you think are the top three, should be the top three focuses of organizations who are looking to develop their AI and ML technologies? So as I think about it from our point of view or the clinical point of view, I see sort of three main things. Cost, capacity, capability, Maimon Memnonic. Um, cost is obviously one. There is a potential for AI to make um, healthcare more affordable, depending on circumstance, um, um, simply because it's generally cheaper to run something in the cloud than to have a human um, or an expert radiologist, for instance, look at it. Secondly, capacity. I mean, Prevent, for instance, is looking very much at a situation where there are not enough people and not enough resources and um, to actually do this in any other way, right? So sometimes AI can really make it possible to do things at scale or in remote locations that we couldn't otherwise do. And um, uh, related to all of this is also the capability. What, what, what do I mean? Um, I think there is a dual aspect. I'd already mentioned reliability, but um, I am actually very excited. And I think many people working in AI find that AI is capable of doing things that um, human counterparts are not doing particularly well or not as well. Uh, likewise, I mean, it's, it works the other way around too. Humans do certain things much better than existing AI. But I think um, the, we can do more uh, when we have when we throw AI into the mix, and in in terms of image interpretation of the of our newborn babies, we can do things that um, you know no human can do. You, know, you can tell a male and female retina apart. You can estimate someone's age. This is Stanford work, not our work, to a boundary of two years. So there are things that are capable with AI that are useful in the healthcare context that we can add to the equation. Yeah, 
And so, Guy, why is federated learning um, of AI important for medical research? And what are some of its benefits? Maybe bring, bring this perspective in for us. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> and, and, and I think this is, this, is, this is an element very important for, for us um, as we work very close uh, with some of companies, some of hospitals uh, with federated learning. Now, I think as, as it was discussed before, we need to have enough data to be able to 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 work uh, to our more work our models. Now, when you look at in healthcare, um, there's there's really different players um, that generate data. You have you have hospitals, you have devices, you have companies, and uh, there's a lot of data around that um, that is decentralized. I think that's very important to to keep in mind. The second piece is it's highly regulated. You know, this is uh, this is patient data, and 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 I think Jochen talked about it. Um, um, it's very personal, it's sensitive information. And when we think about the European Union, for example, we have the GDPR. Um, so the, you need to protect, protect the data and, and patients should need to give consent that their data can be used, but also are able to opt out. So there's, 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 uh, there are things that we need to take into account when we talk about uh, medical research and data. Now, there is a lot of data in different forms as well. Um, so we have imaging data, we have uh, electronic medical records, we have text data from physician, we have genomic data. So it's very heterogeneous and, and, and different uh, model, uh, multi-model data is, is the norm. So um, the data as such is not, is not just one line. So there's, there's uh, different uh, data sets. Now, uh, when it comes to federated learning, I think what federated learning can, can uh, help with is to first of all, as I mentioned before, to keep the privacy. Secondly, but is able to collect the data sets without all the data coming in one uh, one uh, one server or one data one place. And I think that's a big advantage because that allows that we can securely uh, work with the data. The data, you know, you have the compliance element, and also keep in mind it helps also to increase the the performance. We're able to trace the data where it's going. And most importantly, I think that's probably for, for a medical research part, very important, you can collaborate. Now, uh, giving you small examples, you know, if you have a couple of hospitals in Germany or in France or in any other country in Europe, you might have only a few patients. And uh, now I've worked quite a bit on, in cancer environment. You know, you have small number of patients in one hospital, the other hospital, um, they have different data sets, they have different uh, uh, tools that they're using. And I think that's where you need to connect these dots and bring, uh, be able to get enough data so that, uh, that you can do your analysis and you don't have biases because you're looking at only one university hospital, which has perhaps different options than if you go into, into rural areas. Um, and I think that's the big advantage of, of uh, federated learning where you can, um, you know, you keep the sense you keep the privacy there, but you're able to collect more data so that you can actually uh, make more out of the research. And it helps that you can collaborate with different actors, being it on, let's say, pharmaceutical companies, but also being it uh, researchers themselves or companies like us who do research uh, based on data. Maybe you can give us a few examples of federated learning within AI. Yeah, sure. I think uh, we, uh, we, one of the flagship uh, work that we've done is the Melody Consortium, which is backed by the European Union. And um, basically what we did, what we're doing here um, is we have 10 pharma companies who are sharing, among others, you know, the big companies like Amgen, uh, Novartis, AstraZeneca, GSK, 
who are sharing their data sets together um, in the federated learning uh, in the federated learning platform. Um, but basically saying that we share the data sets, it's secured because we're not losing the data, uh, we're not losing the data to a competitor, but we are learning together to make most, more out of it. Um, the second piece we are also, one thing that we did is uh, the project called Health Chain, where we have, we've, uh, we connected four different research centers in France so that they could make more out of the out of the out of their uh, their data sets. So these are two examples that um, that, that are useful. The and third one, I think, where we can think about it also registries. That's I think the other important piece that federated learning can help. Great. Thank you, Sazai. Um, I wanted to bring Nitin into this. Maybe you can give us uh, the privacy perspective beyond regulation. Why is data privacy and security so critical when it comes to AI ML models within healthcare? Yeah, thanks, Tony. I think uh, we heard Sezai talk about privacy. We heard Jokem also briefly refer to privacy being very important. And, and we know that uh, patient privacy has always been important as such. Uh, and, and the reason is also pretty straightforward. Uh, we are dealing with a lot of health information. And as, as James mentioned, this data comes in from various, various entities in the healthcare ecosystem, right? So it comes from clinical trials, it comes from uh, diagnostic centers, labs, it comes from hospitals, payers get involved at, at some stage, right? So a lot of health data is involved. And as you're aware, health data is typically classified as sensitive data. Most of the regulations classify it as sensitive data, primarily because misuse of health data can cause a lot more harm to the patient as such, right? So that's where the patient privacy is important for us. Uh, when we introduced AI into the mix, uh, we are aware and, and a lot of us have talked about AI bringing in a lot of benefits. It is fast, it can handle huge amounts of data, uh, it can correlate across multiple sets of data, it can find patterns. Right? So there are a lot of benefits which AI brings to the table, uh, but then it adds this layer of complexity, at least from a privacy perspective. Uh, some of the risks which we see from a privacy perspective are uh, when it comes to anonymized data, the risk of re-identification increases, mainly because AI is able to correlate data across multiple data sets. So the risk of re-identification increases to a certain extent. Uh, we have seen AI solutions, what we call as, as black boxes, right? So we may not be able to explain exactly how the AI solution reaches a decision, be it uh, when it comes to uh, a decision about a diagnosis or, or treatment option and so on and so forth, right? So it may not be explainable as such from a, from a privacy perspective. Uh, and, and we have seen that it does require, Norm also mentioned that we do require a lot of data for training. Uh, so if you look at it from, from both AI and data privacy perspective, a lot of the principles which, uh, which kind of underpin both these areas are common, right? So if you look at uh, transparency, which is one of the main principles from data privacy is again, one of the key principles on the AI side. Uh, there's fairness, there's explainability, which I just talked about. Uh, there's accuracy of, of the solutions, uh, security of the solutions, right? So a lot of these principles are common. So I think from a privacy perspective, if we are able to apply these principles uh, to some of the AI solutions, uh, we would be able to mitigate some of the risks which come up due to the use of uh, AI, right? So I think that's from that perspective, data privacy will continue to be important uh, to ensure that AI is not biased, it's inclusive uh, and does maintain the privacy of the individual. Definitely. Maybe share a little bit here. Where does edge computing come into all this, and what are some of the 
um, concerns surrounding protecting patient data when it's being processed um, at the edge. Maybe it's a whole topic in itself, but just give us a brief, um, a brief introduction to this. Yeah, so I think, I mean, in very brief and at a very high level, uh, edge computing uh, would mean where the client data, it may be a patient, it may be uh, a normal end user like you and me, uh, has this data collected on some device, uh, which is with the user, right? It may be a wearable, it may be a phone that they may have and so on and so forth. And the, the storage and the computing or, or the processing is done at the at that device itself, right? That's where we call it as the uh, edge computing. Uh, so it happens as close to the originating source uh, as possible. Some of the security challenges that we see when it comes to using such edge computing, uh, one is that uh, there are a lot of these edge devices. Uh, so they may be the phones, they may be the IOTs, they may be wearables or whatever it may be, uh, which kind of increases the attack surface when it comes to exposure of these uh, to the internet as such, because most of them are connected to the internet and that increases their attack surface as such. A uh, lot of cases, we do see use cases where there is health information, uh, which is stored on these edge devices. So the risk of leakage, the risk of breach from these devices does increase, uh, especially when we are not able to keep them well patched, for example, or we're not able to maintain the, the software levels on, on these devices. Uh, since the compute power on these devices is not very high as compared to what you would typically get on the cloud platform, uh, they may not support very complex security mechanisms as well. So these are some of the, I would say, security challenges when, when it comes to edge computing. Uh, from a privacy perspective, I think one of the main challenges that we are seeing is how do you ensure transparency, especially when the, the screen of the variable is, is very small, how do you let the user know uh, about privacy as such? Uh, most of the cases, the user may want to keep the data on the edge and not make it visible to the service providers. How do you ensure that, right? And, and some of the secure compute technologies might help with that, but that's another key challenge that uh, we see from a privacy perspective. I think so these are the a few things from a security and privacy perspective, which I see regarding edge computing. Yeah, and I think you, you did a, a very a, a very good summarization of that. I give you an a, definitely a, an A plus for effort. Yeah, this is a very large topic in itself, and um, I think that was wonderfully summarized. Um, before we move on to our second uh, topic for the evening, which is um, uh, challenges uh, that uh, that organizations face when trying to either build out or deploy um, AI infrastructures. I, I wanted to ask Angela, maybe you can warm us up. What are some of the major challenges that we see already with um, global scalability of AI deployments um, when it comes to international collaborations like we're talking about uh, right now? Sure, thank you. So the question is, what are some of the major challenges to global scalability and um, of AI deployments and international collaborations, right? So I'm kind of going to put together a lot of comments that were brought up by the other panelists um, and maybe use a, um, an actual use case. And um, James, it is going to be detection and triage. So I do acknowledge that uh, the other ones that are operational are just as important, but um, so take for instance, today's um, Amazon marketplace, right? You can almost purchase anything from Amazon marketplace and it's, and it's great in some ways, right? Cause it's instantly available. So when I think about technology, you know the ability today to, to scale it is 
is, is crucial to me, right? What we want to do is not offer AI just in AI developed markets, but also reach some of the emerging markets, areas, distant areas, and um, in some areas, let's say in Pakistan and India, where there's no nearest radiologist within, let's say, 40 miles of a perimeter. And um, you know when a patient needs some help. So, you know, some of these triage solutions are can be very, very helpful if we are able to deploy technology in a scalable way. But I think security is one of the major challenges when it comes to that, right? So look at the, um, so I mentioned Amazon Marketplace for purchasing things. There are similar an analogies for uh, marketplaces like that. They're actually deployed on Microsoft Azure or AWS, and they're called AI marketplaces. So companies like Nuance or Blackford or even smaller players like Arteris, AI Doc, and you know, really everybody is now talking about the marketplace. And it's a fabulous concept, right? if you can make it happen. So what happens is if I want to deploy my technology today, for instance, that I can package what's called a container solution and provide it to Amazon, I have to check with the country guidelines whether I can deploy the technology, I have to, you know, check about the security and privacy considerations in that country. So that to me is a big barrier to entry, right? Where if I want to go and help, let's say, breast cancer screening in uh, some of the remote areas of, let's say, you know, Pakistan or India. And, and this could be, you know, crucially helpful to some of those women who don't have access to, um, to help. So that's really one. It's the global scalability where I see the technology could potentially enable us to do it, but we cannot because... There's so much that's involved when it comes to security. The other one is I'm going to touch upon is federated learning. Um, and we talked a lot about data. So data is the key. And I'm going to hopefully talk a little bit more about the data and how important it is um, in, in this talk. But um, you know, the ability to get access to it is not, not just imaging data, but also clinical data is very important. And also the ability um, to leverage other people's data is important because we're all kind of competing for the same data, right? Our algorithms, they have to be developed and trade on the data, and then we have to validate them. So for instance, a cancer detection solution doesn't work the same way on a Caucasian woman as it does on a Latin American woman, as it does on a you know, Black African-American woman. It works very differently. So there's only a, a certain pool of data that's possible. And to me, A, it is pricey, it is difficult to get to, and there's a finite pool of data. So some of these projects are much delayed because we don't have the access to data. And I think especially in the hospital environment, people are wary about sharing the data, right? We, we have so many millions, if not billions of, of medical, I think 40 million medical records were exposed just in 2020. Um, so, and, and people are worried about it. There's insurance, insurance information on it. There's actually even bank card information on some of this data. So people don't want to share it. So I think if there is more of the information sharing where we can train our data and we can validate our algorithms, that would, that would tremendously help us. So really two things, you know, when it comes to technology, scalability, security, and then federated learning, again, security and, and having technology integrators who could, who could provide the sharing of the information. Thank you, Angela. And Jora, from your perspective, and um, you're bringing more of a security perspective, what are some of the most pressing um, security challenges faced by AI and ML within healthcare. I mean, we already spoke, to, we touched a little bit uh, upon it when we spoke about um, processing data at the edge with meeting. Maybe right. you can expand, uh, expand our understanding a bit more. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, there are two elements in AI. One is the data that needs to be protected. And the second one that sometimes is being forgotten is the model itself. The model is also an important data that needs to be protected and can be contaminated and can be, uh, you know, stolen. So the model itself is a, an important part of uh, an AI. So that needs to be protected. There are different ways to protect data. Uh, there are different ways to protect uh, AI. Uh, some of those uh, methodologies include, uh, I think we, we talked a little bit about that, anonymization, de-identification. Uh, so that's, I, I think, more of a common practice today. There are a lot of challenges for that, especially when you have more and more data and you have very smart algorithms that can re-identify people. Or it's enough that someone is just targeting a person. If you target a specific person, it's easy to get their medical data out of those big databases because you know, you, you might know when they went to a, a hospital or you found some receipt somewhere and then you can correlate uh, stuff there or you can just find third-party database and correlate data into those um, patients. But that's one way to protect the data with anonymization. The second one, which is emerging right now, is homomorphic encryption. Uh, it's a little bit limited in terms of... Uh, uh, of uh, CPU and uh, capabilities of the solution, but it's uh, an emerging um, uh, solution in that space. So that might be a good uh, way. And the third one is really trying to uh, control access to the data and use encryption in a way that only the model have access to the data, but not people. So there is a way to make sure that no person, human, have access to the data. It's all encrypted at all times. The only time that is not encrypted is when the model needs to get access to it. That's an, another way to protect it. So there are different ways to protect the data itself. There are different ways to protect the, the models uh, as well. Uh, so I think that this is kind of high level of uh, some security concerns. And uh, uh, outside of AI, you need to, you know, deal with best practices of security, how people get access to it, you know, how do you do your identity and access management, how do you do your auditing and, and logging, so there's a lot of, you know, common practices of security that are standard for any system. James, bring in, um, bring in the perspective of providers and what are some of the high value challenges that they're facing right now in developing their AI and ML algorithms and, and infrastructures? Yeah, great, great question. Um, you know, Angelina, Angelina uh, uh, Nitten and um, others have touched on it. Um, we've all kind of been talking about it a little bit, but the biggest challenge, uh, you know, some of the high value challenges facing AI and healthcare and ML is, is the data, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we can talk about 13 different DICOM languages, proprietary DICOM, HL7, we've got Watto, Quido, Stowe, right? You've got Nifty, Analyzer. I mean, there's so many different clinical specialties. And like Angela said it too, is it's not just about the imaging data, right? It's also the phenotype and, you know, the clinical content that exists in the LMS system and the EMR system. I mean, it just, it exists in so many different areas in the organization. Um, I personally believe that unlocking the data unlocks the future of AI. I mean, I think we could all agree that we need more data. But the challenge is, is that we, we 
we think that a lot of the challenges is that we have to get access to the data and it's it's a fear of providing the data due to regulatory and patient health information. By all means, that is absolutely correct. But a big part of it is 99% of the health systems in the world, they can't go into any particular system inside their organization and say, male between the age 40 to 45, Hispanic background, positive lung nodule, upper lobe treated with this drug. You can't do it. I mean, health systems here in the United States, I know, you know, one that's right here in my backyard, I won't say the name because I don't want to play favorites to them because uh, I have two of them, but they have 50 full-time staff that is constantly looking for data for research companies. 50 people just trying to go through the EMR and to go through this. And so the biggest challenges comes down to data standardization. If we can standardize data and we can have GE themselves, right? They have 14 different CT models. They all produce a different metadata on their DICOM header, which affects hanging protocols, which affects the ability to search that data. And how do I link it to a clinical content to get it to a researcher? Then once I get the data, how do I curate it? How do I ensure that the actual interpretation that was originally done was done? And AI can help facilitate that. And so the biggest challenge is how do we standardize the content and create that linkage across these 45 plus specialties and all of the information that really brings into play population and precision medicine? We can sit here and talk about precision medicine being about genomics, but it's more than that. It's my lifestyle. It's my environment. Where do I live? How do I do You know the things that I do? What was I already treated for? Is there history inside of my family? All of that information exists, but it's not structured and it's not accessible. And so if we could figure a way to do that, and that's the biggest challenge we have, we unlock the door to federated AI data learning. We uh, federated data science, transfer learning, all these other technologies and techniques, uh, not to mention just what it will do to security, <laughs> right? Uh, I can start talking about behavioral learning, right? Word is a perfect example. I know how Word functions. I click on Word, it opens. When Word does something, it, outside of that norm, we have technology that will pick up on that right away to say, wait a minute, Word shouldn't be doing that. But when you have so many different types of clinical data with uh, that is not standardized, some of it's structured, some of it's unstructured, some of it's flat, I mean, it's, it's hard to determine when data is being used irresponsibly because there's no, there's no blueprint for it. So that's, that, those are the challenges, in my opinion, that we face. It, it all stems around data. I think it always has. Great, thank you, James. Um, Jochen, expand on this. What do, what do you pinpoint as the key, some of the key adoption challenges that are that are faced by the industry right now? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> everything that's already been said is extremely helpful. I think the other adoption challenges I I, I often think about is you know, um, I'll go, I'm going to go with our example. We need to get into a hospital. We need to deploy a camera in our case, at least that. Um, so there are methods around that. How do you get that into the system? Then you need to train personnel. You need to figure out what's the right procedure. Everything has to be standardized. So it's actually the same thing that James was just talking about, but a little bit um, in, in, in the real world. And after that, then there are things that are coming up for us, such as, um, you know, we, you have a device that collects your data and then you move the data into the cloud. So there, then, you know, the, the people with the security experience on the panel, how do we make sure that nothing's lost, nothing's duplicated, etc.? cetera? Um, so there are many challenges. And then um, even designing the AI so that it gives you a result that's actually useful clinically can sometimes be very, very important. Uh, 
and James already pointed out the, the fact that, that we have to be consistent at different locations. And so um, in some ways, these are all very trivial problems, but executing them well uh, uh, is difficult. And um, I think the other problem I see, and maybe that's just a, a, my own opinion, is that sometimes we're, people can be very cavalier about building an AI. You know, you, you plug it into a model, you run it, you get a pretty decent result and you're ready to go with it. And I, I think one of the challenges is that um, if you want to deploy this clinically, uh, and Angela has had beautiful examples earlier, um, you need to make sure it really works as advertised in different populations in different locations. So the summary might be <laughs> that there's an infrastructure challenge as well to, to de building and deploying AI. Um, that's what comes to mind for me. Some of it's costly, some of it's an opportunity to streamline the process. It's not all bad. Sometimes when you really think about what you need to do, you can work with people and build a better workflow. And that can happen too. So um, the challenge is always an opportunity, but we do need to build ways of deploying this in the real world. That's my, my personal for, foremost problem. Thank you, Jochen. Uh, Angela, let's bring you back into this for a second. Um, what are some of the challenges that um, medical device manufacturers are facing while developing um, AI tech and deep learning algorithms? Right, right. So the challenges in deep learning uh, as far as a medical device company goes. So it's really going back to what both James um, and Jochen talked about, which is data. And um, deploying it within a hospital. So I'm gonna briefly talk about the data. And then I'm gonna also talk about another aspect, which is a regulatory aspect as well, which I think we haven't mentioned right now for a medical industry. So yes, big data, a lot of data. To perform well, you need a lot of data. To be performing well in various diverse backgrounds, you need diverse data. And FDA regulations are now actually being stricter in terms of the diverse backgrounds of the population we train our data on, we validate our data on, also um, on diverse manufacturers um, like GE and Philips and Siemens and their different gantries. So you need to be able to get diverse data and then you need to get enough of the data, right? And if you look at some of the detection industries, cancer luckily is not more prevalent than the normal cases, but that's why it's harder to find. So you really need to go and look for it and you need to go to a facility and talk to disparate system like James was talking about and try to pull all of this data, not just imaging data, but also pathology data, radiology data. So enough about data. I think everybody's heard about how difficult it is and costly it is to get the data. Regulatory is the other aspect, right? And I think um, also to uh, Johan's point about being cavalier about AI, you know, you can point any, you know, download an engine and train your deep learning algorithm, but you really need to have a good regulatory officer that can lead you through this landscape uh, because it's important how you frame your indications for use. When it comes to an FDA regulated device, it's also important how you conduct your clinical studies to prove the efficacy and safety of a product. 
And this is where I've seen a lot of companies, you know, especially international entrants got hung up thinking, oh, I'm just going to get my algorithm through. But FDA says, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. And they're very, I've been in many of these pre-subs, you know, they're very detailed. These people are very smart. They understand what they're doing. So you really have to do your homework in understanding not just what does it mean to train the algorithm, but also to validate it and to show that it is safe and that, you know, it is efficient to use and it has clinical efficacy. So in my opinion, you know, regulatory um, is important. Obviously, compliance is important and also um, the data, as we talked about. Um, I wanted to, to touch on um, this point you brought up and uh, to touch a bit more regulatory compliance. Um, James, you know, just over the past few years, we've seen many regulatory um, compliance and security uncertainties. What in, is your experience as to why uh, there is so much turbulence within these areas. Yeah, this is this this is a real good question. Uh, I think there's there's way too many for us to talk about here. Um, obviously, we've got security concerns. We've talked about there's data concerns. There's <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, of different aspects to the concerns that we have from a regulatory and compliance and just the diversity in and of itself there you know we've got here in the u.s different rules than just you know our friends in canada have just right across the border that we're touched to and then japan has different rules and everybody else has different rules for for compliancy um the the way that i will answer this question is is i look back to the beginning of why how have we facilitated a lot of the concerns and compliance issues that we have if we look back to the digital era of, of radiology and PAC systems, uh, whether it was Fujifilm, GE, for Siemens, when they went and talked to a healthcare environment about their solution, their message was almost exactly the same. Literally, it was, I'm going to save you time, I'm going to do this, and here's how I'm going to do it, and, and here's how our solution works for you. I've got double click to one up, spine labeling, rib labeling, right? They were almost identical. So there wasn't any confusion when Fuji went and talked to a customer, GE went and talked to a customer about PACs. But then let's move forward a little bit about enterprise imaging and vendor neutral archives, right? Let, let's, let's really think about, oh, it's the next biggest thing in the world, right? It's this massive market. It didn't take off either. Why? Well, you have one company coming in saying wrap everything in DICOM and you have another company saying don't wrap it in DICOM or reroute everything. And so messages became different. People and physicians didn't know how to understand that. And then it started to talk about security and the, you know, the, the introduction of, of, of ransomware and the things that were happening in that standpoint. Um, and so there wasn't a consistent message. Now, fast forward a little bit more. Same thing with AI, right? Hey, you got ransomware issues and everybody spent years um, securing their internal networks and building out these very robust data centers inside the hospital. So now saying, hey, all of those silos that we broke down, we're gonna have 50 brand new silos because I have to have 50 different AI algorithms because not one company has them all and they're all living in the cloud. And you've got these other people saying a different story. And the way that we had originally messaged this, even though it wasn't our intent in the AI space, kind of came across as AI was going to replace human intelligence. But that's not really what the intent was. You know, Noam said it, um, Angelina said it. Uh, uh, we've all kind of mentioned that piece is that it's, it's actually a tool to help enable the clinicians to make better decision support. And so when we first looked at it, it was detection and triage. And it was doing what a human can already do or mimic AI, right? I have a blueprint. The human can detect a lung nodule. They can measure a lung nodule. That's very easy AI, cavalier, like y'all said, that I can build because I have a blueprint. 
But the hard stuff, like uh, they're working on at prevent, right, that humans can't do, that's really where the fear comes into play. Because it's like I don't have transparency into those algorithms and the difficulty of it, even though it has such a significant impact because a human can't do it. And that's really where value of AI comes in, is doing the things that humans cannot do. So compliancy and the, the, the lack of education and understanding of AI from the regulatory bodies not having been really developed and the messaging that were coming from the vendors, I personally believe created kind of this, this fear of AI early on. And now with COVID, to be honest, you know, the good, bad, different or ugly of, of the COVID, it has actually helped us to show that AI has a very significant impact in healthcare. Because without that, we would have been swarmed without the detection, the triage and the workflow stuff that these algorithms that companies put out to help us during this pandemic and crisis that we had. And so it's kind of helped to push us away from that fear with another fear, you know, to get to where we were. But I think we created a lot of it ourselves early on. And FDA and those guys and uh, regulatory and CE marks, they're just following the reaction of the industry back in 2013, 2014. Jochen, maybe you can outline for us, what are some of the financial costs that come along with developing um, machine learning algorithms? Um, at the end of the day, how, how affordable is it? Okay, so <laughs> the cost. Uh, obviously, um, and I'm just going to say the word data, getting it, curating it, storing it is, is cost. Um, depending on how uh, thorough your model is, you know, that these models, these neural networks, for instance, get much bigger, there is a significant cost in actually building a, a model that's robust and well validated, uh, etc. Um, uh, so those are big costs. And the problem with that is that sometimes is that uh, you have this upfront cost. Running an AI model in the cloud, I think everybody would agree, can be quite inexpensive, even to the point of being almost free. Um, but you have this big upfront cost. So we, we have this, um, you know, there's a bit of a dilemma for companies to say, okay, how much do we spend upfront? How much validation do we do? How What can we get away with uh, in terms of, I'm not saying, there's always a trade-off, a careful evaluation. So I actually think, in, to follow up on what uh, we just heard, is that the regulatory bodies have been actually really good about making us be honest and helping us figuring out how to do that. And their questions are very reasonable and so on and so forth, and, and, and very helpful. And then there's the cost of deployment. We talked about that. I mentioned briefly infrastructure is there, but it's totally managers, manageable. In many cases, it amortizes really, really quickly. And then... Um, I think AI could be cheaper if we really go to the model that's been discussed, at least in, in my world, where you, as you collect data, you improve your algorithms, et cetera, right? You, you know, um, there, that is a, is a wonderful opportunity, a very big challenge, because what we have to do is de-identify data, then use it, uh, et cetera. We have to make sure we have permission. But in principle, as you get, as you get data, you could make the model better, and so you can build AI relatively cheaply once you have primed the engine or the pump. Uh, and, and so um, what am I saying is that uh, funding is, is becoming is, is a really big issue. So I see disparate worlds. There are big organizations that can fund these things and roll out products and, and they're doing a good job. There are startups that often have 
uh, more create, creative algorithms, more creative approaches, but they have trouble getting get, building a product that would stand up to the healthcare market. So um, I think we need a framework that enables us to know how much it'll cost. You know, we, you know, a, a model, a model where you plug in. If I need ten thousand patients and it costs me X number dollars per patient, how much would it really cost me to build a model, etc.? Um, but at the end of the day, and uh, I can only speak from an outsider's point of view, building AI is much cheaper than building some medical devices. You know, medical devices have a lot of hardware, etc. Um, and certainly. I remember from my time at pharma, building an AI is vastly cheaper than bringing a drug to market. I mean, it's not even in the same ballpark. So um, what I'm saying is it's not cheap, but it's relative, it's comparatively well spent money. So uh, there needs to be a process by which we say, okay, when do we spend money on devices, drugs, AI? How do we put the three together? It, I think that would be helpful to the, the landscape in healthcare, especially since, you know, uh, and I'll give you one more example. When we do our genetic analysis on the newborns, when, when it's indicated and the parents consent, um, there's a real, you know, gene therapies for eye diseases are being developed at a, an incredibly rapid pace. So this only makes sense for us in the context of a bigger, you know, ecosystem of healthcare around the eye. Sorry, I'm being long-winded, but... Um, I think um, we want money up front, as everybody does always, to do the best possible job. And a final question for you, Angela, before we move on to uh, our next topic, which is approaches and solutions. I know some people are jumping off because um, we're getting to the end of the hour. So thank you for those who have joined us. Um, you'll get contact information for our panelists um, and within the coming days, so you can reach out to them yourselves. Um, Angela, I had a question, just a final question for you on, on the topic of challenges and threats. Um, how has the pandemic affected your product design and technology deployment um, within your own team? Right, right. So um, again, the challenges of pandemic in terms of technology deployment. So we realized very quickly that um, at ICAD, you know, that really addresses an elective procedure in a hospital. So not something that's acute or that has to be addressed right away. In these types of situations, people are putting um, a hold or women are just not going for screening, right? So the first challenge is um, a people are not using it. So what do you do when people are not using it? So that quickly had us rethink about how can we you know, how can we help within the within the pandemic? So we started looking at trends of what is happening with radiologists and users and providers. And we saw that there was a backlog that's being built in terms of seeing the patient. So we knew that once the gates are open, people are gonna start coming back and there's gonna be all sorts of operational efficiencies that need to be addressed and women will have to be rescheduled and scheduled. So, you know, and that's exactly what happened. So um, we actually look at a, uh, addressing the triaging solutions and uh, the ways of prioritizing, you know, who would be seen first. So that just from a technology point of view actually was, you know, something that we utilized as a positive, right? We had to, we had to figure out what to do. Um, the, other, the other piece to it that we realized is that, you know, you want to be pandemic proof in today's world. And I think the cloud and marketplaces are there to show us that there is a whole other way to deploy technology and to reach the hospitals. Now, hospitals aren't fully ready for it. 
But I do think that from a, a vendor's perspective, you know, not being able to go into the hospital and deploy a system, and now everybody knows we're dealing with hardware challenges, right, and, and supply demand, you actually, there, there's a lot of challenges with hardware-based systems. So you look at some of the native cloud solutions out there, um, they have different challenges, but at least they have, you know, an advantage of deploying technology without any hardware. So I think pandemic has shown the light that software-based solutions are solutions that are going to be more pandemic-proof and successful in some ways. I don't think hospitals are ready to go purely software-only or, you know, be deployed in virtualized environments. I think it's going to be hybrid for a long time because of security and privacy reasons. But I do think for me from a you know, globalization and, and, and product scalability, business scalability perspective, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking where is this going to lead us and how are people going to be thinking about purchasing technologies and, you know, leveraging their budgets in the future to maximize the spending. So those are some of the things from, you know, the pandemic point of view. Um, the other one was really accessing people not being able to go into hospitals and give us the data because, you know, they couldn't go in, you couldn't, you know, and, and then the vaccination, mandatory vaccination became um, the uh, requirement. So all in all, you know, anything that, 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 that you depend on physically is, um, is a challenge. It's a risk for you today. So I think software-only deployments are really something to, uh, to consider going forward. Thanks, Angela. And thanks for wrapping up um, our second topic for us. Moving into some of the approaches and solutions um, maybe you can start us off at the end of the day, can AI function in a resource constrained environment or setting? I think it can. Uh, as I said, once you have done the upfront investment, you can roll it out. Um, uh, it, it, it has to be portable. So uh, on the infrastructure deployment side, we have to re-engineer some things in our case. And I think that's probably true for many uh, cases. Um, I think ultimately it can be a really useful tool. It, uh, we need to get more comfortable. Regulatory bodies have to get much more comfortable with a semi-autonomous AI that, that has a little less human touch, little less human sign-off. Um, so I think um, it will be. But I think uh, the all the players at the table, security, data acquisition, regulatory, um, even the kind of devices we built need to be, um, you know, configured to, to make it really deployable. Uh, I'm optimistic about that because every time I speak to somebody about what we do, even in the most general terms, is can I get an iPhone attachment to do this? Um, so I think people totally get the idea that these solutions can be out there in their own hands and, uh, or in, in, in a, no, in, a, in a very sort of broad self-managed way. So I'm really optimistic about that over Thanks. time. And James, considering the complexity of clinical content and its potential uh, growth, what is a key component health systems must address in order to uh, move to safely adopt AI and ML? Yes, thank you. Uh, I think we've touched on the two big pieces of it uh, quite extensively here. Um, one is addressing the data issue and accessibility to that data. Number two is, is like Johan said, is the, the infrastructure and the deployment models and methodology of it. Um, and, and even Angela talking about uh, hardware versus software-based deployments. How, how do I adopt the solution uh, and Johan was even talking on the financial aspects of it, right? How, how do I uh, adopt a solution inside of the organization that one, 
I can do very rapidly because I'm limited in resources. You know, we as patients didn't have the ability to get to the hospital, but neither does the IT staff or the other supporting staff as well. And so how, how can the IT staff that uh, needs to support these environments, how can they scale so that they have the right infrastructure? What is the security? How can I adopt these without a significant amount of investment that I have to do from a resource standpoint? And that, that's one of the areas that we need to address in order for adoption and assimilation into the IT infrastructure culture of a hospital to occur. We have to have solutions that are not demanding or, or dictating to the customer that, hey, by the way, you have to use a common data model that was created in 1975 that no one in the world has ever adopted, right? It's the wrong approach anymore, right? We have to look at what it is that these various different cultures that exist, even in the U.S., amongst the various different hospitals. Address the data, figure out the interoperability. What does the infrastructure look like? What does the deployment look like? How do we move a little bit more efficiently and effectively so that we can actually adopt and assimilate faster to see in a return on investment for what we've done? Because if it takes too long, once you get past the department level, the C-suites going, well, did that give us any benefit at all? Well, we're still two years into it. We're two years out. It doesn't work. That's that. That's to me, in, in my opinion, is is one of the components that needs to be addressed. Is how do we wrap all that together? Thank you. And Nitin, uh, just to bring back um, uh, to bring you back into the discussion, what are some of the mechanisms that can help organizations overcome some of the challenges that we've already discussed um, when it comes to data sharing and data privacy? Yeah, so, uh, so Tony, I think if you really look at uh, GDPR, right, I mean, there are two key objectives which GDPR has. Uh, one of them is obviously the protection of uh, privacy rights of individuals. Uh, but the second one, which is maybe not getting so much of attention, is that it wants to have free movement of data, right? So that is one of its stated goals. Uh, now, when it comes to sharing of, of data itself, uh, organizations are reluctant to share data, mainly because of sometimes fear of misuse, sometimes losing competitive edge. Uh, the regulatory environment itself is sometimes overburdensome. Uh, I, I think a lot of us have talked about GDPR, uh, but what happens at a ground level is that GDPR does allow for some leeway when it comes to implementing country level regulations as well. And, and these have caused overlapping kind of regulations and have hampered transfer of data as well, right? So. So there are challenges when it comes to regulatory requirements from a data sharing perspective. But I think some of the ways which we can have to overcome these challenges, uh, I think Noam talked about privacy preserving technologies or privacy enhancing technologies. Uh, he, he talked about homomorphic encryption, which essentially helps processing of data even while it is encrypted. Uh, we have technologies like secure multi-party computations, which, which allow for splitting of data between parties. And then the parties kind of process their own set of data and then it comes back together. Uh, a lot of us have talked about federated learning uh, where the learning happens locally and the aggregation happens at a, at a central location, right? So, so these are some of the technologies which can help with uh, secure sharing of data and can help some of the challenges when it comes to sharing of data. Apart from this, I think it would help to have uh, a more consistent approach when it comes to regulations as well. I talked about uh, overlapping regulations, both at a privacy level, there are regulations coming up from, a, from an AI perspective. Uh, EU is again having uh, kind of leading the way when it comes to AI regulations. 
Uh, so these regulations, yes, they are there for certain reasons to have some kind of governance around the solutions that we're bringing up. But again, they should uh, be coherent. They should not have too many of overlaps as well. I think the last one is in terms of patient awareness itself. Uh, I, I think one of the panelists mentioned about the transparency aspect. Does the patient really need to know that AI is being used at the back end? That is a question that we need to have good answers for. Uh, we talked about AI solutions being explainable, right? So the, the doctor or the clinician who is interacting with the patient should be able to explain why a certain decision has been reached either by the clinician himself or herself or based on some inputs which they would have received from the AI solution. So I think these are some mechanisms uh, where we can uh, overcome some of the challenges when it comes to data sharing and, and implementation of AI overall. Thank you so much, Nitin. Um, wonderful response. Um, Angela, why don't you tell us what is the future of AI-based algorithm deployment? Will it get easier um, and easier or more difficult on out? Um, sorry, what is the future of the uh, of the AI algorithm deployment? Exactly. Some of the challenges that we're we're needing to overcome. Well, one we talked about the data, right? Data. We will need more data as you want to create more accurate algorithms. You are going to be, you know, and and wanting to access other markets, you're going to need to be looking for more of that. I think the other aspect in a couple of, I think Johan um, touched upon it, is the financial aspect, right? There has to be an ROI, and you need to be able to justify a investment into the algorithm, and also um, the return on investment to a buyer um, and a provider. And buyer and provider are often not the same folks. So there are different things to think about when you when you consider what does it mean to run a company? What does it mean to run, you know, a profitable, you know, vertical within within a business? And I think one aspect of AI that is unique is that in in contrast to machine learning algorithms, in contrast to traditional software development where you just pay engineers, now you have this additional cost of acquiring a lot of data. So how do you include that into your contracts? And I just myself have been thinking through this lately. You know, on the one hand, it that the competition is driving the cost down, but on the other hand, you need to run a profitable business, right? And there is a cost to having an upgraded algorithm, not just upgraded in terms of, you know, a feature or a bug fix, but a really better performing algorithm that you're spending a lot of money, you know, at getting the data for. So it's almost leading me to a pathway of thinking about the third category of sort of upgrades and technology innovation programs. Like how do we really prove the value of this to a user? And, and, and there's no question that at least in, in, in the products that I've been making that people see the value, right? There are thousands of them deployed. Um, people are a lot more efficient. They can finish their, their day earlier. You know, there's a lot more accuracy and uh, physicians are looking at this as they're confident. But at the end of the day, they need to pay their bills as well, right? Especially the people who run their practices. So. I think some of the challenges in the future are going to be understanding how to make cost-effective solutions that A, people can afford, and two, we as companies can, can profitably run, right, and that we can scale. So I think that's going to be, you know, one of the major aspects for us to, to consider in AI in the future. And, and there aren't that many companies that are actually profitable and that are selling in the AI market. If we see how many of them there are, now, and, I, and I think that is one of the biggest reasons, if you look at any industry research today, you know, a lot of companies are still not profitable after being on the market for quite a long time, so... Jochen, did you want to jump in on that? I saw you raise your hand, or was that a mistake? It wasn't a mistake, um, but I've, I want to keep it very short. 
I, I think um, what comes to mind is that there's there's not clarity about who should sell this, right? Um, is are we as AI companies just going to be tacked, tacked on to medical devices, et cetera? Or are we going to actually run our own businesses and, and so on and so forth and build our own ways of, of providing healthcare? And I don't mean this in a bad way. I'm really grateful to the companies we've worked with, Nate's, um, Mednax, and Genome Medical, right? But we need a business model that actually, you know, to follow up on Angela's, that makes us profitable. And we need, a, we need to decide whether it's a business on its own or a solution that is available to other businesses. That is just a thought, a concern. Or, but if we figure that out and we find a couple of viable business models, I think we'll do better as a healthcare AI community. James, my next question is for you. Uh, Angela wants to wants to respond. Okay. I just want to add something very quickly to that. That's great. I'm going to connect with you, Johan, afterwards. <laughs> I'd love to hear about this. Uh, the other really quick uh, point is that a lot of us are selling directly to providers, right? We're not selling to consumers, but there's a whole area of selling directly to consumers. And there's a lot of polarization about whether this is a right or not, you know, not the right thing to do. Um, and uh, I, I think that's also something to consider, you know, what is your go-to-market strategy when it comes to AI and who is the final recipient of the AI outcome? Is it the provider um, or is it the patient? And I'm, I'm currently working with, you know, slightly both business models, but um, that's just something that I wanted to um, add. Thank you. Thanks, Angela. And James, uh... Do you, when considering the potential of AI and ML uh, within healthcare and research, um, considering everything that we've we've discussed until now, um, what is your position or maybe some 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 insights that you can provide on how health systems can begin to move forward with success? Yes. Um, well, one of the things is a, a very clearly defined assisted blueprint from a strategy for them. When, when we kind of look at the industry right now um, in healthcare, regardless if it's AI or just healthcare IT in general, where, where do a lot of the strategies and standards come from? You know, um, look back at enterprise imaging, it, it comes from healthcare societies, which is being driven by clinicians 99% of the time, but it's not being driven by somebody like Angela or Nitin or Johan or, or Noam, right? that are actually looking at it from outside and, and really seeing the challenges. Sometimes we don't, we don't actually know that our house is dirty until we leave and come back home. And it's like, wow, <laughs> there's dishes everywhere. Um, and so one of the things that I think could help facilitate the, the healthcare organization, especially from healthcare and research is um, having a really good strategy and blueprint with a panel of, of individuals like oh, Nicole here with some clinician interaction to really build out what does an AI strategy look like? Because what it's going to do is it's going to address data, it's going to address infrastructure, it's going to address financial, it's going to address deployment, it's going to address every single thing that we talked about here so that it's not only beneficial for the healthcare health system and the healthcare providers, payers and patients, but it's also beneficial for the AI community, like Johan said, right? As well as we're taking into consideration the entire continuum of care and operation of the organization. We're not just looking at it as, hey, here's your, here's your, your, your strategy for enterprise imaging. From the AI world, it's much, much bigger than that because it's, 
it, it hits at the time of uh, the visit when the CSN or the visit number gets created in the EMR all the way through laboratories, through the entire continuum of care and workflow, touching the medical device, touching the technician, touching the clinician, going to the EMR, getting back to the referring community and then to our patient portals. And so when we look at it from that aspect, I think the biggest thing is, is defining a very strong AI strategy that takes into consideration the challenges of Everything we talked about, again, data, interoperability, deployment, security, storage, right? We, we didn't touch a whole lot even on the storage aspect of it, but the security and the storage and the accessibility and delivery of that is just as critical, right? I mean, Johan probably knows better than some of us when you start talking about genomics data, it's massive. I mean, it gets really, really big, right? And we took, we're bringing whole slide imaging, you know, 25 gigs, 30 gig studies. It's, it's a massive amount of information. So my opinion and my position on how health systems can begin to move forward with success is if, and only if they have a clearly defined universal strategy, right? Not just one created for the US, but one that's created outside of that. Cleveland Clinic is a great example. They're not just US based. Half the radiologists that read in the United States don't actually live in the radio live in the United States. So it's a global community. We need a strategy that's designed for a global community. Let's create our own MedSAP and help the uh, uh, not not actually create MedSAP, but the concept of MedSAP, right? And help uh, the healthcare organizations facilitate their own success. Thank you, James. Um, Nitin, back over to you. What are some of the policies and technologies that organizations can leverage? to help them comply with current privacy regulations? Sure, Stone. I think there are, I think two key aspects that I would focus on when it comes to uh, compliance with privacy regulations. Uh, one is, uh, one of the key requirements from a privacy regulations perspective is safeguarding data, right? And we have seen some of the more emerging technologies which help safeguard the data, but at the same time share this data uh, either within the, within the country or, or as, as cross-border transfer as well. Uh, encryption of data, we saw homomorphic encryption as one of the key technologies which is coming up, does help on this side. Uh, it does help meet the requirement of both safeguarding data as well as in cross-border transfer. So that is, I would say, one key aspect from a compliance with privacy regulations perspective. Uh, second aspect is that when this data is safeguarded in this manner, uh, it does help with uh, uh, instances of data breaches. Uh, if, if, for example, the data is encrypted, uh, then the, the need for notification of both the authorities as well as the data subjects of the patients in this case uh, are a lot lesser, right? So, so, so the, the oversight from the regulatory agencies is a lot lesser in this case if the data is encrypted. So these are, I would say, two key aspects. Uh, another aspect which we have seen uh, come in use when it comes to compliance with privacy regulations is uh, when data is either anonymized or it is uh, encrypted for that matter, it does allow for some secondary use of data when it comes to a privacy regulation or compliance with that as well. Right? So these are some, some of the mechanisms uh, which help with compliance with privacy regulations. Um, so, so these are two or, things, two or three things I can think of, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, we have a few more questions. Thank you so much, Nitin, for, for your response. We have a few more questions before we move on to Q&A. And we already have some questions in the chat. Um, you guys have dropped a few questions in the Q&A box. So feel free to, um, to, to go wild. Yeah, and go ahead and, and ask any question you'd like for any of our panelists. Um, if it's specific for one of them, you can also add their name and we'll try to get to it in our final, our final half hour. 
Um, now, uh, Jochen, I had uh, one of my final questions for you, which is what are some of the ways that we can work to democratize medicine and make it more accessible to um, populations who, who need it most um, and who might be impacted by, um, by the bias that we, we find in, in, in our, the algorithms today? It's a really difficult question, but probably the most important for me personally. So, I mean, our, our technology could in principle de be deployed and we're working on deploying it uh, on a pro bono or foundation basis. To that end, we had to sort of scour the globe to find somebody who can make a camera that works in the right environment and has the right price point. Um, um, we had to set up a different structure to be able to provide this in, in at a sort of at cost or non-profit uh, basis. But I think um, it, I don't want to just talk about the baby eye screening. I mean, uh, I think that smartphones can be very powerful tools. I recall when we, when, I, when we were working in Africa with IBM research, we were able to implement a sort of semi-automated ovarian cancer screen that was able, you know, anybody with a smartphone could take that test. And that makes a big difference to people's lives. If you show up with stage four ovarian cancer, it's too late. If you come up early, it's an eminently treatable thing. So I think, um, what's the summary? It's difficult, but if we have the motivation, we have actually the technologies um, to do this. And um, I think the pandemic too early on really showed us that, um, you know, when we have faced with a problem such as you know, widespread testing of, uh, for COVID, um, there are solutions out there that are, that are totally accessible to us. Uh, and um, yeah, I don't mean to sound like, a, you know, an, an advertiser, but I think, um, I think uh, there is sort of a way of, of taking technologies that we've developed in a very commercial setting, taking them out into the world. And it works the other way round two. Once we figure out how to do something in a streamlined, elegant way, in a resource constrained environment, we can bring it back and possibly improve. I, I think it, I like to see it as a two-way street, personally. Thank you, Jochen. Uh, and Angela, also a final question for you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the personalized medicine approach um, that ICAD is focusing on uh, in, the, in the current work. Right, absolutely. So um, personalized medicine approach that ICAT is focusing on. Um, so in general, I think personalized medicine is what all of us are striving for in the end. I think everybody wants a personal approach and we all know that you know even a baby aspirin doesn't affect everybody the same, um, let alone a um, you know risk assessment of breast cancer when it comes to you know being a woman and you know where what 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 is your ethnic background you know what is your life and whatnot so what we've done in ICAD is uh, we've actually taken images personalized images and uh, we've developed a novel risk assessment algorithm that's very it's a new modality it doesn't it doesn't focus on a long-term risk which is very subjective and in our research you know, 75% of women who actually do develop breast cancer really don't have family history or don't have density, right, pronounced in their breasts. So um, you see that, you know, some of these traditional approaches are just not working and, and, and they're part of a broken system. People are paying for it, you know, they're ordering MRI, supplemental screenings and whatnot, but they're not working. So what we've done is we really looked at um, each woman and um, her images, we developed a risk score, and then we individualized it by a further refinement of including her 
racial and ethnic background. And then we looked at different country guidelines, which also affect a, um, how the risk score, um, what would the final score is. So incidence and mortality rates, for instance, in each country are different. So this is just to show you that AI is so diverse and the more personalized it is, I think the more acceptance it's going to find, especially in preventative um, areas, such as any kind of screening, you know, whether it's breast or colon or prostate or any kind of screening that you see out there. So to me, I think if you want to focus on an on, on, on approaching individual person, um, the way to do it is, is through a personalized approach. And we can do it. We, with, with AI, we do it anyway. And this way, we just need to think a little bit about how is this really going to be affecting somebody who thinks about not their sickness, but their health and their wellness, right? And, and, and really looking at treating people as clients, not so much as patients, right? There is an area for obviously AI in patient setting, but there is also an area for preventative, you know, client-oriented setting. So as I what do you see ahead for the future of healthcare? And does it include everything we want and more? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Thanks a lot. Um, I, you know, I think a, a precision medicine, obviously, you want to find the right treatment for the, for the patient. But I think, um, uh, yeah, we will, you know, we, talk, we talked a lot about do we have the data? How do we get the data? I think in a couple of years, probably this, this problems that we discussed will, will, this will be solved and, and we'll be able to, you know, to talk about solutions that are there. Um, obviously, so I think, but I think when it comes to, does it include everything? I, I think it will include hopefully the right treatment for the right patient. And um, there's, you know, I've launched products where you've seen only 40, 50% of patients responding to it. So there's 50% that do not respond. And the question is like, how do we find out? Um, how do we find out what's best for this patient? So I think it's not about just getting everything, but I think the right thing, uh, right uh, treatment for the right patient. And, and potentially also not getting treatments that are that are not necessary. So you know if you if you get treatments and, and you're exposed to side effects that based on on potentially an AI might might uh, help you to to get the right treatment and not just not just getting it for the sake of getting it. So I don't think it includes everything. I hopefully it will include more and more the right the right treatment um, uh, for the right patient. Very nice. Um, and our final question I uh, have here is for um, uh, Noam. How can we further evolve the future of AI security within healthcare? Yeah, so a lot of good ideas here. And, you know, I think it all summarizes into, you know, we need access to good data, we need good models. And in order to do it, we need some standardization and access to that data. So I think in the future, one, uh, you'll have some sort of a catalog of, of data sources. So you'll, you'll be able to go to somewhere and say, hey, I need some information about a specific cancer and you'll see where is that information located around the world and you'll be able to work and have some automatic contracts even to get access to the data, to pull that and, and work on a better AI model. So, so, so that's one. Two, and I think someone here in the panel said, mobile phones are going to change uh, the world here as well because we can provide the patients their data and they can choose to share it. So we don't have to go just to the providers or just to specific companies. We can incentivize patients to share their data and uh, advance AI. So if I can download today, I, I have my EMR um, mobile app 
I can download my entire file and I can sh and I can share it if I want to. So I think that would be a big change in the industry. And the last last but not least, I think security is going to be an enabler for the, this entire thing because once we'll see that we have solid ways, very strong ways to secure the data, to make sure we don't have leaks, to make sure that we keep privacy, then that would be an enabler to get that technology more and more uh, uh, available everywhere. So I think that so just security will, will make this whole thing work way better and way faster. Thank you, Noam. I saw Stezite, were you raising your hand? Did you want to add something to that? No, no, apologies, that was wrong. No worries. Um, well, thank you everyone for your best insights and for a really wonderful discussion. Uh, and thank you for our audience also for joining us. Um, this, uh, this topic requires deeper discussion, but uh, we're limited on our time today. So we're going to uh, move on to a Q&A segment of our event. Um, and I'd like to take the opportunity to open our floor up to our attendees. Anyone who might have a question, feel free to drop it in the Q&A below or the chat box if you can find it, that's okay too. Uh, we've already received a number of questions and um, some of them, uh, Jochen has been busy uh, typing away uh, privately, but no one can see this except for the person who uh, uh, who asked it. So I will maybe just uh, re-ask some of them out loud and um, maybe have you guys also join in on the discussion in the chat below. Um, so uh, one of the first questions we got uh, was in response to, I think, something that Angela was discussing um, about uh, financial data being uh, used in, in um, uh, private patient data. Um, and being stored together, isn't there a way to anonymize and segregate financial data from patient data or even use synthetic data in some cases? Yeah, so um, it, it de depends where the information is stored, right? And some of this, some of this data is structured. There is a way to actually anonymize it easily. Some of it is completely unstructured. Like some of the some of the systems are not completely digitized yet, right? So you have a lot of scribbling notes, and people sometimes will just scan it in and they'll put it in, 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 in a record, and people don't even know that information is on it. So I've read somewhere that um, I think it was CyberMDX um, report that financial data that that healthcare data is actually twice as expensive today as the financial data, and that's because it does store all of this information. So I can tell you that on our end, when it comes to ICAD, we have a very, very strict policy when it comes to data curation and harvesting and anonymization. It passes several different layers of blinding. The imaging data itself, which does not have financial data, that's just DICOM-based data, based data. And then you have the other EMR-related data that has all sorts of payers' information and then you have clinical data. So I'm sure there were, you know, there are other companies that are working on this, um, but um, I, I don't know of anybody who solves all of the anonymous needs, you know, so that you don't need a human um, in the picture. Uh, we already, you also have a human who always checks several times whether complete, you know, complete information PHI is removed, but maybe some of the other panelists might have other insights into it. Yeah, I, I, I just going to jump in there if that's okay real fast. Um, Angela's dead on, right, about, you know, PHI data. Um, I haven't talked much about what we ultimately do here at, at Enlytic on this, um, but that is something that we actually built uh, several years ago. So we decided to take AI and use AI. Again, if, if you see the theme of what I was, was talking about today is that we can actually use AI more than detection and triage to solve problems such as 
data standardization. Um, you know, we built an AI algorithm using multiple different um, uh, AI technologies and techniques that can standardize all DICOM data and create the linkage between the DICOM study and the, um, the EMR record and only provide that critical information. But as we started looking at this, AI companies have the exact same problem to sell systems. We've all said, it. we need more data to learn. We didn't actually build these solutions to sell them, right? We built them to solve a problem that we had, which was how do we find the data? How do we train the data? How do we, or how do we curate it? Then how do we train, right? But I'm getting data from Europe and, and Australia and Japan and all around the world that have all these different privacy requirements and stuff that we're talking about. So what we found was, is that traditional anonymization, de-identification and re-identification tools didn't work. So what did we do? We built an AI-based de-identification anonymization tool that actually allows us to use AI to de-identify data, but also to deal with the biggest problem that PHI is that a lot of cases, PHI is actually burned into the pixel data in the image. We built AI to solve that. Right. And so then when we started looking at, we built that AI, we built the AI to solve the data standardization and linkage to the record. It's like, wait a minute, now we're opening the door to creating time earlier on in the workflow and addressing some of these privacy issues. These are the same problems that healthcare organizations have. We should be, you know, monetizing this for the healthcare organizations because they struggle with this every single day. So AI that we built internally just to solve the same problems that they have has a very huge value to these organizations. And that's kind of where the premise of my discussions and stuff were coming from is, is that there's a, it, it is so much more powerful than what we've seen it actually doing today. And uh, the future is really bright for, for AI and ML based companies. Did someone else want to jump in on that? Does uh, anyone else want to add to that? Okay, well, another question we have here, and this is one that uh, Jochen uh, went ahead and uh, privately responded to, but um, wanted to get um, everyone else's take on it. Um, what are some strategies for including training and motivating hospital staff? At what stage of planning or implementation would you recommend this be done? If, if you give me... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I want to hear another. Yeah, no, I think I think this is a you know I had a couple of good discussions in the last couple of weeks with hospitals. I think um, what I see is um, and the, the the people that are the researchers they are really aware of what kind of data they have and what they can do with it. So they're really motivated to work with companies like us and probably also others. I think there's there's some challenges that we need to work together with them. The first piece is really the resources in these hospitals and and research centers because. Obviously, they have their they have their patients, they have their own work, they have the research that they do. So, you know, on top of it, you come in and say, I, I want to work on an AI tool with you. So I think that 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 brings some some um, some challenges for this organization, um, because uh, you know, how do you how do you finance that? I think we've, we've touched based on that a little bit earlier. So I think that's one of the challenges. The second piece is is always the legal um, the legal battle I would say um, with 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 institutions and and private companies like us and and others obviously um, because it's a new field and and they don't have that much experience so that um, for some of the hospital researchers I think um, getting this first experience beyond and understanding what kind of data they are giving away and how is it secured I think will also help. 
but um, my my experience so far and, and the feedback that we that um, that that we that we get is they are very motivated, but there's hurdles that we all need to work on uh, to make it uh, to make it happen. Jochen, anything to add? Yeah, so I mean, I agree with everything, and you said basically similar things to what I said. It has to be transparent. The information has to be good and usable in the hospital. The other thing we find is that um, we we're in the we have the privilege of actually involving people in the design process of how all this works. So, what I was writing is we work with the parents, we work with the OBGYN, we work with the actual doctor at the bedside, the neonatal care nurse who takes the images, and the, the downstream people, and so. I think when people see how the whole thing works and get to make it work for themselves, that's how, what's been successful for us. And so um, it, uh, the, the revelation for me was is we have the technology and that was just the beginning of the work, right? That, at that point, you have to sort of um, start advocacy and education. Right. That's probably true for most of us, right? And it can also be like with med medicine, right? So. so you know, you, when you uh, air a commercial for medicine to a consumer, at the end, they go back to their doctor and say, oh, I want this thing. So it, it will work the same way. And I think also to add out is, is this people will be more and more familiar with, with, with these tools. I think, you know, when you think about what we are using, um, just think about the example in Switzerland where there was a question about financials. I mean, credit cards were not really well, much used in Switzerland. Uh, people are still using a lot of cash. We're in other countries, they're more advanced. Uh, but now I think in, with the COVID situation, it has actually changed. So people are using it more and more because they get more comfortable. They, they see that there's, there's security behind it. Um, and I think I, I see it that way. You know, Now it's not happening now, but I think in the couple of years, uh, upcoming years, uh, also patients will realize there's a benefit of, of using variables, of uh, you know, using AIs because um, a lot of time is it do you want to trust the gut feeling of a physician or perhaps the gut feeling link, linked with with uh, with a model that gives him some hints where actually which would be the best uh, treatment for for uh, for uh, for the patient so i think it's it's just a matter of time that will come and and people will get more comfortable to you give their data to use uh, to use ai to also um, to also get the, the right treatment for them yeah, that takes us into um, our next question. Um, what is your take on AI suggesting differential diagnosis of a disease? Do you think it would reduce patient chair time and improve clinical judgment? Um, and they wrote a second, a follow-up to this is what I meant uh, by saying this is um, when recording history based on patient responses and clinical findings, can AI be used in suggesting clinicians possible disease conditions, which would in turn potentially reduce patient chair time. Yeah. I can start off with, with this one. Um, if I believe I'm, I'm understanding based on the follow-up question, uh, this is something that I'm very passionate about myself. And again, I, I know it seems like we, we talk about the same things and I'm not going to really talk about it, but at the beginning of it is data and it is deployment and it is infrastructure. And so when we talk about the, the particular question there of can it be done is moving away from decision support, right? Decision support has been around for, for a long, long time, but we're talking about precision medicine here. We're talking about population-based medicine here. We're talking about evidence-based medicine. 
So if I have a standardized archive of data that is federated and I have access to this population-based health information, I can now start to make inline clinical recommendations of you know, different types of disease diagnosis, um, history based on the precision medicine of variable, variabilities of environmental, economics, ethnicity, the whole nine yards. So even as, a, as, as one specific example, if I have an archive of 54 million objects with health systems, uh, 54 billion objects with a, one health system, uh, not to mention multiple, actually has an archive in the United States of 54 billion objects, right? That data is pretty much useless to them because it's, it's almost difficult to search it and find it, but I bet you it would be great for uh, Sazai because he's in research and the rest of us to train information on. What if I standardized all of that data? And then I had a mechanism that was able to search that data instantaneously instead of in years, and to be able to do what we call retrospective-based insights so that we can look at differential diagnosis and say, even something as simple as how I read, 80% of the time in your organization, this is missed on this particular type of procedure. Now we're driving down error. Now we're also driving down potential re-emissions, which is a $28 billion cost in the United States alone. Right now we're using the data to actually be able to do this differential type of diagnosis to keep the patient out of the chair because I'm looking at it holistically across the population based health. And it all stems from every single thing that we talked about here, deployment, infrastructure, security, especially security and uh, uh, data standardization. Um, before we can, Jochen, uh, do you need to, do you need to jump off where uh, getting towards the end of the event, but Jochen might need to leave. So just say thank you so much for, for um, oh, I think he's gone already. Okay, well, um, okay, well, we'll watch the recording. Um, Angela, did you want to, to go next? I can jump real briefly. Um, is the question, the question is about differential diagnosis and do we see AI making differential diagnosis? Is that sort of the crux of the question? Oh, it was a two-part question. Um, yeah, so that was the yeah, that was the question. Right, yeah. Um, so when it comes to differential diagnosis, I'll, I'll take I'll talk a little bit about the primary um, read or um, the essentially ability for an AI algorithm to say whether something is cancerous or not, which is not per se the definition of differential diagnosis, but it, it is in the realm I think of the AI being a primary reader. Um, and and I do think you have to look at what what type of area of AI you're dealing with, right? What geographic region you're dealing with. Uh, for instance, my regulatory landscape in Europe is completely different from a regulatory landscape in the US. In the US, you only have primary reads. In most of the world you have, um, when it comes to screening, you have um, the uh, double blind screening reads that are mandatory or highly compliant. So it really depends. And you will see vendors out there actually claiming the primary read on certain um, in certain markets, right? So that primary read would be for the second reader. So there is an AI and a radiologist, for instance, um, not just radiologists. So I do think it's far-fetched. It's a little bit further far-fetched in the US because you have to think about legal liability and you know, if an AI makes a wrong decision, who would be responsible for it? I do know that um, we've had some conversations with FDA and we're not that far away. Um, and there are some algorithms that are showing very high accuracy and uh, very low rate of uh, false negatives essentially and false positives, even lower than the radiologist when it comes to, um, to certain things. So for instance, if you triage normals, right, which is 
90% of radiologists do, for instance, in breast screening, they just spend a lot of their time in looking at normals, which they don't need to do, right? You can have an AI algorithm look at that. And then um, they can focus on complex issues and, and questions that they need to address. So I do think it's a little bit out there. Uh, and AI will certainly never replace radiologists, I don't think, but I think there is a role for AI in a uh, certain geographic areas and also in certain um, clinical use cases. In fact, there was a, um, a precedent for this in a uh, OBGYN and pathology for a um, for a computer essentially to make a, uh, a normal primary read. So thank you, Angela. Um, Noam, did you? Well, oh, maybe we um, maybe we move on to our next question. And did I see you raise your hand, Noam? No, I, I mistook this also. Okay. Um, well, um, it's already uh, pretty late. We've run a two-hour event, and I think we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of topics. Um, so thank you everyone for joining us today, both here on Zoom, on YouTube, and on LinkedIn. We see you. Um, and thank you to our speakers, Noam Dior, Angela Azubacic, um, Nitin Dehavate, James Conyers, Suzai Kaskin, and Jochen Kuhn. Um, we've already lost a few because of the hour, but uh, thank you for, for everyone who's joined us and participated today. We hope you're all staying safe and healthy. Um, to get in touch with any of today's panelists, you uh, can reach out to them directly. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days with the contact information of each of our panelists. So don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have any further questions, excuse me, on today's topics. And uh, to stay up to date with our upcoming webinars, you can also follow Hub Security on LinkedIn. Uh, we also have a Twitter. Um, we also have a Medium. You can keep up to date with our upcoming events there and um we hope uh, to host uh you guys again very soon thank you again to our wonderful panelists thanks everyone take care thank you, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.